Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy. Our guest today is Josh Rand, who is a guitar player in the iconic Stone Sour, as well as the Life Project, his brand new band. He's been in it for 20 plus years, Grammy nominations, Golden God Awards, nearly every accolade you can imagine. This guy has done it for real, and I was very excited to get to talk to him. So I hope you enjoy it. I introduce you, Josh Rand. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So I see that you built a studio. That is correct. Can you tell me a little bit about what's in it? Drum room or vocal booths? Like how many rooms is it? It's really just two rooms. I have my control room and then I have the live room, which is probably 12 by 12 with nine foot ceilings that the amplifiers are in and uh, where we would also cut vocals. Drums aren't done here. They're actually done at another studio in town just because I can't, you know, I don't have all the preamps or to do the drums proper here. This studio is basically set up so I could do all my guitar tracks uh, at home at my own pace. You know, I have a couple of Neves preamps, API, Chandler Limited, A-Design, Manly, and then effects-wise is even tied Lexicon. So it, like I said, it, it was really my idea was is I wanted a place where I could just do guitar tracks at my own, my own pace and have all my stuff instead of trying to travel all of it to a studio, which has been amazing, you know. Do you prefer self-producing guitars or working with a badass producer or is it kind of pros and cons to each? I think there's pros and cons to each. Sometimes I think you might need to be pushed or it's nice to have that input to go into a different direction. But other times you might really love something that you like and the producer might not like it or love it as much as you do. (laughs) So I think there's pros and cons both ways. I always found, and I'm curious if this is your experience too, that technically, like just straight up playing wise, that working with a really good producer always pushed me to be better than I would be on my own, I guess. Like I always felt like I couldn't quite push myself that extra five or 10% that a really, really great producer could. Do you ever feel like that? Just technically, not creatively. Maybe in the beginning, I'm pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. I am my own worst critic. For example, with the CP, with the Life Project, we had started mixing... I actually didn't like the guitar tone in it in a couple of parts that everybody else thought was fine, but fine didn't work for me. So I actually delayed us mixing it and I went back and re-recorded all the string instruments in a week. At this point, I have enough under my belt experience-wise that I know where it needs to be. For me, it's just having that extra person help me think outside of my box, whatever that is, you know. Fine isn't good enough. So that makes that makes sense to me. I guess when you're in a situation like that where everybody else is saying it's it's fine, but you know it's not, how do you know that how do you know that you're not just focusing on something that doesn't matter? Like how do you know that you're right and they're wrong? I just feel it in my gut. I just go with my instinct. So far it hasn't really failed me. I I think after the guitars were retracked and everything, everybody was like, Oh, 
because he says sound better. And my main thing was, is with this project, I wanted to make sure that it didn't sound like everything else sonically. You know, musically, I'm going to play and write. I have my own style at this point. But I think we're in a day and age now where it's so easily digitally to just grab the same drum samples as everybody else Mm -hmm. or, Hey, forget re, you know, miking up an amp and actually getting a unique guitar tone. We'll just reamp it and run it through a Kemper or an Axe effects. So with this, it was really, I really wanted everything to sonically sound different than anything else that was going on. You know, that was a big thing with myself and Josh Wilbur was, it has to stand and sound like me, but I don't want those same drum sounds as everything else that's going on. I think that's the trap these days. Like on the one hand, it's super easy to get things to sound pretty good just because the technology is so advanced, but that's also a trap because when you get to that easy, pretty good level, um, it also starts to sound pretty homogenous. Um, And it's very easy to make stuff sound identical to a million other things. I think getting things to sound unique is still the real challenge. Absolutely. Like you touched on, it's really easy just to to pull those samples and do that and to reamp. And, you know, my biggest thing is, is unfortunately, in some ways, I'm old enough to remember... (laughs) how real records, I shouldn't say how real records were made. The the old process is what I'll say, where it was all about dialing in that sound. That's This is going to be the sound of this record. And this is truly a performance with the entire band. Um, you know, in Stone Sour, we made two records where we recorded it live in that same old school way. And even though you know, obviously everyone switches to Pro Tools to record. I still wanted to keep it so it had that live vibe. It's like minimal editing. Let's see if I can just play this stuff and try to get it in a pass or two. And just, it's all about keeping that vibe. And and like I said, and making it just, getting it to where I was just happy with it and, and not sounding like other stuff that's going on. So when you try to get it in one or two passes, what happens if you don't? I'm pretty well rehearsed before I get to that point. Good answer. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of practice going on. Well, like I said, I mean, I went back and re-recorded the whole EP, like everything in a week. Probably wouldn't have done that if I didn't know those songs inside and out. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people are missing when they go into a studio situation. I think that that's one of the reasons that records aren't made the way they used to be. It's not just technology. I think it's also the musicians aren't as practiced as they used to be just because uh, they kind of had to be. They had kind of no choice with the old way of doing things. You couldn't really edit the shit out of everything like you can now. You couldn't really piece things together like you can now. And so I think that people have gotten comfortable with walking into the studio not knowing their songs well enough. Um, that's, I mean, obviously there's some genres of music where, you know, there's session players who walk in and have never even heard the artists they're about to record for, but that's kind of different than rock and metal. I think in rock and metal, you kind of need to be rehearsed to, to be able to pull it off properly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those session guys, they live, sleep, eat, and breathe music. In rock and metal, maybe... 
maybe the lifestyle is more of the draw than actually sitting at home <laughs> and crafting your your art and and getting back to the players like when I first started playing or and actually it was a little bit before that you know it, it's funny to me how everybody you know not everybody but a lot of people will bust on hair metal but most of those guitar players and all those bands would They're run great. oh they would run circles around anybody that's come out the last 10 years you had to you were they were each trying to outdo one another to the point where i mean they were so technical proficient it's just crazy and i mean some of those guys obviously are still massive today and have a huge impact but those guys also i mean like steve i you know i don't know if he played guitar but you know his 10 hour workout every day that he was doing back when he was younger and even still to this day i've ran into him a couple of times and he's like i still play hours a day i go down into into my studio and mess around. And it's just like crazy to me. It's like at 60 some years old and he's practicing like he's just picking up the instrument. I had a friend who had to deliver something to his bus once, like in the nineties. And he told me that, so he knocked on the door and Steve came and opened the door and said, give me a moment. I have 90 seconds left on this exercise and went to the back and finished it. Then he was ready to find out whatever it was that my friend needed to deliver. But uh, he was, when he said he did 10 hours and like would do it in like down to every two to five minutes in segments, he wasn't kidding. He actually did that shit. Oh, I believe it. And I think that last video that he released of him playing, what, a four and a half minute song with no right hand? It's all legato. <laughs> <laughs> What a maniac. <laughs> it's insane. I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe this. But if anybody could have pulled it off, it's definitely him. What goes into your practice regimen when you're getting ready for the studio? I pretty much practice the same things. It's just all the monotonous stuff that nobody really wants to do, um, which is, you know, that one, two, three, four, and all, all every picking pattern that I can possibly come up with mm-hmm. in sequence. So it's just basically that. And then I'll change that up and make it hammer-ons and pull-offs. And then sometimes I'll just mess around and work on some sweep picking or string skipping. Over the years, I've kind of gotten away from playing guitar solos from when I was younger. So that that style, that those techniques haven't been at the top of my list. It's more of working on actually writing songs at this point than exercises. But just to keep my hands loose, I spend like 30 to 60 minutes a day just doing... Like I said, that boring stuff that really nobody wants to do. It's like cardio, basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you just kind of have to do it. There's no way around it. I think if you don't do that stuff on guitar, um, your skills are just going to deteriorate. That There's really no two ways about it. It's a perishable skill. But the thing is, I really think that if you want to maintain, like not get a lot better, but if you want to maintain technical ability, that is all you need to do is like 30 minutes or 60 minutes of exercises and you're good. Yeah, I agree. Even 20 if they're really, really focused. I think where a lot of people go wrong is they will not do that stuff for long periods of time and then try to cram it for like three days, like practice like eight hours. I think it was John Petrucci that said once that practicing one hour every single day is a lot better than practicing for 12 hours once a week or something. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree as well. Consistency makes all the difference. Do you think that your playing has 
a lot to do with the tone because you said that you didn't like the guitar tone on the record and came back and redid everything. But I'm curious, like, what was it that you didn't like? Like, is it something in the way it was played or is it something in the way it was dialed? Like, what was it? It wasn't necessarily that it was bad. It, I just wanted to make it more aggressive and more aggressive. Like when we sat down and initially I recorded the tracks, basically I used what I used during Stone Sour and it was my Stone Sour tone. In that context, I'm also with another guitar player and kind of my job is I kind of fill in kind of the glue, you know, um, since in, in Stone Sour, my primary role is playing the rhythm guitar, if I can talk. Um, you know, so I'm kind of the glue that holds everything together in this project. Since I'm the only guitar player, I really wanted to kind of get back to uh, it being more aggressive and a little bit meaner than just filling that gap that needs to be filled for the whole band to be full, if that makes any sense. Got it. I wasn't fighting another guitar player. You know, that's the other thing. It's like I wasn't battling somebody else for for space or you know it's kind of like like i said i kind of dial my sound in to fit the other guitars in stone sour is what i usually do whereas in this case you are the guitar sound exactly yeah you have to take up more space and it's less about being complimentary and because there's nothing to compliment like you have to handle everything exactly is that a huge mental shift not at all i mean it was just I think if there's any massive shift was, holy shit, I got to write all the solos for all these songs. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done that for a while. I mean, I do solos on every album, but it's, you know, it's different from, hey, I'm going to play like four to I got to write 13 and keep writing them. So man, writing 13 solos is quite a task, actually. It totally is. I mean, the thing is, is musically, I try to make every song completely different than another one. So then at least I'm not, hey, it's the same tempo slash same key slash, you know, tuning. I mean, I'm notorious for bouncing around in tunings. Basically, I'm doing exactly what I would do in Stone Sour with this, except for um, having Cassandra allows me to branch into a couple different styles that I probably wouldn't bring to the table in stone sour musically you know there's a we've got several piano based songs and it just there's a different freedom just like in the life project i wouldn't do something super heavy that i feel would need like those aggressive growly vocals you know which Corey brings makes sense could we talk about the tunings for a second because um just a i was just having a conversation with somebody the other day about how to deal with writer's block. And I've always thought that different tunings is a perfect way to do it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you're not hearing anything or feeling anything or nothing's happening when you try to write, I've always found that a different tuning just makes it happen for whatever reason. You notice that? Absolutely. In fact, one of the songs that we wrote, that's what inspired me. It was the song called Ignite. And we were out on tour a couple of years ago uh, with Korn. And I ended up trading guitars with Monkey. And I ended up with one of his seven strings and corn tunes down to A. And I just left it in that tuning. And then after the cycle was over, I got home and I, I pulled that guitar out. And I messed with it and left it in that tuning. And I wrote a song. Basically, on a, my first time playing a seven string, wrote a song on the seven string in corn tuning. And I just, I was inspired. I hadn't played anything tuned down that low before. So it just took me in you know, 
this uh, different creative journey, I guess. What was the thought behind uh, trading guitars? Really, that's what kind of brought it up. It was like I've never owned or played a seven string. And we just started talking and I traded one of my custom shops for one of his stage views. So it's like both of the guitars that each one of us used on stage and we just swapped. I mean, so it's pretty cool. It's almost like a whole new instrument, but you understand how to play it. That's it's weird. Somewhat. Somewhat. <laughs> because like in some ways when you're playing in a new tuning, it's like learning how the fretboard works for the first time. But you've got your technical skills and you've got your ear and you've got your experience already. So it's like you can kind of feel your way around better than if you were a total beginner. But I think that it's different enough of a situation to where ideas that you would have never had otherwise are allowed to come to fruition, basically. Yeah, I agree. It was a little intimidating, though, for me, because it's like, you know, I've spent like 30 years playing a six string or something like mm -hmm. that or close to it. So, yeah, having the extra string was a little weird, um, you know, and did I take full advantage of playing this seven string at this point? Probably not. I'm sure there's purists out there that are like, well, you could have played what you played on a six string detuned down to A, which I probably would agree with them. <laughs> but um, honestly, just the inspiration from the instrument itself to write a song that I might not have written otherwise is enough for me. Whether I use, you know, use the seven string to its full potential. I mean, that's not what I'm, what I do. I write, I try to write songs. I'm not one of those guys that's going to be doing 10 finger tapping on the nine string anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that the corn guys don't use it to the full potential either. And that's, I think when purists say stuff like that, they're totally full of shit. Cause, uh, cause you can't argue with awesome songs. You can't argue with awesome songs and awesome riffs. Like it doesn't, I don't think it really matters. Like in my opinion, if you were able to write something awesome through playing that guitar, you used it to its potential. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's how I look at it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how I think, especially in metal and rock, but more so in metal, there's this peanut gallery that impose their viewpoints on the artists in a way that, they don't really in uh, in other genres, like what they want them to do on the instrument, what kind of songs they demand that they write, what kind of mix they expect on the record. It's a, it's kind of weird. Don't you think? Or are you used to it? Yeah. Well, at this point, I, there's pretty much nothing that anybody's going to say that I haven't heard after 20 years <laughs> in a negative way, you know, and you're not going to make everybody happy. I mean, and when you start thinking about what other people are going to think, then to me, you've compromised your own integrity. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I'm just like, you know what? I really don't care. As long as I'm happy with it at the end of the day, whether it sells one record or one million records, and I know I did it my way, that's all that matters to me. Like, like I said, you're never going to make everybody happy. You got people that'll just troll for the sake of trolling to upset try to upset you if you read your own stuff or get your fans going. So they, I mean, they probably are sitting behind the keyboard laughing, you know? So I just, anymore, I just roll with it. And sometimes I'll be honest, I, I get a kick out of some of the stuff that gets said and I'll be like, that is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you gotta have thick skin. I mean, that's the thing. Did, is that something that you developed over time or were you just naturally suited 
Um, I think I developed it over time. The big thing for me is, is I was so late into the social media game. Like I had already, you know, I'd, I guess, matured in a certain way. And I had seen everybody else in the band go through all of that, you know, people trolling that by the time I got into it, um, I was just like, yeah, whatever it is, what it is. And I'm not going to let it affect me or any of that stuff. You know, you knew what to expect. Yeah. I knew, like I said, I take it with a grain of salt. If you take that stuff personally, then I mean, it's not good. Cause I watched other people over the years where it'd be like a hundred people would say how great you are and all this and that one person would say something negative and then they would focus on the one person saying something negative over all the positive stuff from everybody else. And I was just like, yeah, that's not, I'm not going to let that happen to me when I made that decision to be on social media. I, I think that uh, to do that, to ignore the one negative comment, you have to consciously decide not to, because I think it's human nature to focus in on the negative. I was thinking about why that is. It's kind of illogical, right? Like get thousands of amazing comments and great feedback and then there's like 10 people who just say the worst stuff you could ever imagine, like hilariously brutal. And people will focus on those 10. I started wondering why. It kind of makes no sense. Those people are such a minority. Like they're absolutely the total minority here. Why do we care when that happens? And um, uh, I read somewhere that uh, it's an evolutionary thing, that we've evolved to see threats and uh, our brain, our brain doesn't really know the difference between a real threat and a perceived threat. So when over hundreds of thousands of years, we evolved to see like, you know, look at a tree line and spot the threat in the tree line, like pick out one little thing out of, uh, you know, an entire landscape. So your brain is doing the same thing when looking at a thousand comments and finding the one bad one, uh, though technology has basically evolved faster than our brains have. So yeah, so we're sitting there scanning for threats when we don't need to be, when it doesn't even make sense. There is no threat. But that's why I think we have to consciously make the decision to not pay attention to that stuff. Like, because it really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Like you said, it's very minimal in the big, in the big picture of everything. It's like, like I said, I firsthand watched several people focus on that and watch it destroy their entire day over one person's comment, but then have hundreds of people say how great you are, this or that. And it's just like you said, it's, it's weird that you shift and focus to this, that one person. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy, but humans are, humans are quirky like that. You got to sometimes make the conscious decision not to just do what comes naturally. I think because if you think about it, if you, when you see that shit from the outside, it's kind of interesting because you see it ruining somebody's day, but in reality, it's not ruining their day. They're ruining their own day. They're allowing it to have power, basically. Exactly. So I want to talk about Jay Rustin a little bit and Sphere. When you said that you guys recorded a couple of the albums live, were any of those the ones you did at Sphere? Actually, Hydrograd. Yeah. The, so the core of the record, Roy was in the big room. We had baffles and dividers set up for us also in that big room while he was doing the master drum take. And we just had headphones on and Corey was in the vocal booth. So when we laid down the initial like core of the album for these songs, yeah, we were 
was for the most part live. Obviously, we went back and did overdubs and the guitar solos and, you know, the finishing touches of the record individually. But for the most part, the core of the record was live. And so was the first Stone Sour record. It's a pretty insane drum room that they've got at Sphere. It's very cool. I wonder if it takes a room like that to be able to pull that off properly, where the whole band is in there and you can actually still get a huge live drum sound. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, all the records that we've recorded in Stone Sour, we've always had huge rooms and we've been in amazing places. Catamount here in Iowa and then Blackbird in Nashville and then Sphere. So, I mean, we've always had massive rooms to be able to set up and everything can breathe. And of course, all those all those studios have been designed by, you know, the top studio designers in the world, you know, so, but it's been... Uh, Amazing to be able to record in those places. What do you prefer? A place like that or what you just built? Which looks really nice, by the way. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. If it's for me, I would prefer to be at home and be able to go get a cup of coffee and, you know, oh, wait a minute. I got to go. I'm going to go take a shower or whatever. But obviously in a full-on band, I could do drums here. Like I said, I would just have to get more preamps. But there's also something to be said about getting up and rolling into a studio especially if you're recording as a band and you arrive together, there's just that, I don't know. It's just like, I don't want to say it's like punching a time clock then time to get to work, but that's kind of what it feels like. You know, it's just a different mindset. And obviously when you're going into one of those places, you're not screwing around either. I mean, that's the reality of it. At home, I can screw around. <laughs> so it's a little bit more relaxed. When you guys go into a situation like that, how much pre-pro is there typically? I think we spent four days pre-pro for Hydrograd before we went into the studio. How long were you writing before that? A year. Yeah, see, that's the beauty in between Slipknot and Stone Sour is because because the both bands leapfrog one another, it allows the other band to start collecting ideas and slowly put stuff into motion for the next album. So we pretty much had the groundwork for the entire record even before we started pre-pro of how everything was going to be. That's kind of a luxury that a lot of bands don't have is that much time to put together every record. Yeah. And on top of it, you have myself with my studio. Roy has his own studio with his drums already set up, you know? So it's like the demos always sound pretty solid from us and stuff's already set up and ready to go. Actually, Christian has his own setup. That also is nice to have. You know, getting back to that studio where you're like, what do you prefer? The other thing I, one of the reasons why I built this to the degree I did is because time is money in the studio. Um, I have a lot of, I have a lot of gear. And the thing is, is with that, I want to try stuff. And that was one of the main pushes for me. It's like, well, I want to put chorus on this guitar. Guess what? I have 36 chorus pedals, <laughs> for instance. Guess what? I want to try all of them. It's hard to do when you're on a schedule and a budget. And that was really one of the main pushes for me, like I said, to build this place and have all my stuff here. It's because I have quite quite a collection of stuff. If we were recording in California or Nashville, I wouldn't even take probably half of the stuff because we would never get to it, you know. But at home, I can. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize that even if it's like a successful band with a big label, a studio like that with a great producer, you're still under the time crunch. Like every record is under the time crunch unless it's done at home. And you're always over budget. <laughs> always. It's almost like 
physics or something like some rule of the universe that records will go over budget. I think that it's because uh, the amount of work there is to do somehow always scales to the amount of time that you have to do it in and a little bit beyond that. So if you have one month, you'll have five weeks worth of work to cram into that month. If you have two months, you'll have something like uh, 10 weeks worth of work to cram into those two months. And it just kind of goes that way. So no matter how much time you book at the studio, you're always going to go over or it's always going to be like right down to the fucking wire. Exactly. And then the, the thing is, is like with the places I'm talking about that we've recorded at, you're talking big name studios that are booked out. So it's like mm-hmm. you are crammed because guess what? This band's coming in right when you're supposed to quit. So if you're not done, then you're going to another studio that obviously might not be as nice. And you're just trying to then finish the record, you know? So yeah, it's, it's kind of nuts. And like I said, that's one of the reasons why I built this place. Like, can you imagine, like I told you of mixing a record and then all of a sudden anybody calling a label up and saying, I want to retrack all the guitars. So I'm going to push mixing back two weeks. (laughs) That's not happening. I can imagine it, but I can also imagine what the reaction, which wouldn't be very good. Yeah, not at all. And like I said, the beauty of this is no time crunch. Can't put a clock on inspiration either. That was another thing is I wanted a place where if I got an idea, I could just come down and record it and also have it be halfway decent sounding, even in a demo form. So how did you learn how to record? Where does that come from? I mean, it started with my obsession of recording started right when I started playing. I ended up getting a Vestex four track cassette recorder that I put through the ringer in the in the 90s. Like the, the record button would like break every two weeks and I'd have to take it back in for them to fix it because I would wear it out. I don't know. I'm just as much as creating the music I love to create the sonics of everything, which is, uh, can be challenging at times, you know, like I said, I'll sit there and I'll want to top it. And that's what drives me. Like, I just keep going, you know, and just let's keep pushing it. Oh, that sounds good. Okay. That's cool. But can we top it? Let's go ahead and use this, but can we go back and see if we can beat it? And that's, uh, obviously a challenge at times. Well, the question that I'm wondering is at what point do you just get to where you're just making things different, but not necessarily better? I feel like there comes a point where you've already made things better and better and better. And then that amount of better that you can get starts to diminish by a lot. And then things just start getting different. But then the question is, are they actually better or just different? You ever encountered that? There's a fine line there, I think. When I mean go back and record stuff, a lot of times the arrangement and the parts are the same. Like for me, it's going back and sonically seeing if I can top what's already there. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really changing the song at all. It's just sonically, can I make it sound richer? Whatever I'm trying to achieve. Like I said, I have a lot of gear, which is a blessing and probably a curse at the same time. (laughs) And like I said, if I have the stuff, I want to use it. I want to try it out. You know, I'm really picky with what I pick up as far as gear. So it's like, if I, if I own it, then I want to try it. So do you feel like uh, recording yourself helped you get better at guitar? Yeah, I think it would help anybody because the thing is, I can't obviously speak for everybody, but for myself, when I'm playing, what I hear is kind of different than what I hear when I play it back and I'm not playing. Mm -hmm. Like my focus is on playing and not 
messing up. But then when I can just listen to it back and then I'm like, oh shit, that's sloppy as hell. Or that sounds like it's terrible, you know, or whatever. I think, I think it's a good thing to record yourself, anybody, because it allows you to hear yourself differently than when you're playing. Allows you to hear the truth, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's other things going on while you're playing other than the fact that, yeah, your focus is on the playing. You're feeling the vibrations through your body while you play. If you're not blasting it, you'll hear pick noise too, which the pick noise blended with distortion can make it sound like it's got more attack than it actually does. There's all kinds of stuff that will throw you off. If you're trying to play really tightly to something, like for instance, drums or whatever, listening to those drums may take your focus off of listening to the guitar some. And so it's just really, really hard, I think for, and there's probably like 15 other things I'm not thinking of, but there's so many, there's so many things going on at the same time while you're actually playing that I think it's really hard to have an objective, just an objective idea of what you even did. So hearing it back is the truth. Exactly. I 100% agree. I actually think that that's something that if guitar players really want to get better, they should start recording themselves. And you know right away if you're not tight. Yeah, not tight. And just the little nuances that happen too. You know, there was times where I'd listen back and I'd be like, I'd have a little string noise. You know, I didn't mute, palm mute it necessarily right or whatever. So I think it's just that stuff. Sometimes that stuff's cool. Sometimes it's noise. Like I know some people that loved all those little happy accidents and, you know, having that string noise and this and that, and then, or the complete opposite and want to suck all the life out of it and everything has got to be perfect. But I think there's a fine balance there. And that's where really what I, I had picked up on once we started recording stuff for this EP was I noticed that my, uh, kind of got lazy with my right hand and and some of the chugginess where I was sometimes getting a little bit string noise. And it just probably over the years, like my picking had changed. So I hadn't really focused on my right hand for so long, but now I kind of have where now it's like pull out the metronome, get back to that and really focus on the right hand just as much as my left hand. I actually think that the right hand, I'm not going to say defines a guitar player, but it definitely sets the stage for everything you're trying to do on guitar. I mean, every once in a while, there will be that Steve Vai song or whatever. But in reality, if your right hand's not strong, I think your guitar playing is compromised. Well, I agree. Tone-wise, too, I think that in order to get really good tone, your picking has to be on point. How hard you pick, the angle you pick at, all those things like need to be on point. And uh, yeah, they'll start slipping. Yeah, I mean, perfect example is, I mean, James Hetfield. I yeah. mean, the, you want to talk about a right hand or Tony Iommi. Those are your two guys to look at where that right hand is. Those bands wouldn't sound the same. If, I mean, it's so much of it is, is, their, is their hands and their picking. I think I read that James said that he used to downpick for like an hour a day, just sit there and downpick just to get warmed up and better at it like he would just sit there and i don't know if he was playing riffs or anything because it's a long time ago when i read this but he would spend like an hour sometimes two hours per day just working on his right hand that's crazy 
I believe it's not a surprise. Though. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you want to see how great your right hand is? Start playing some of those early Metallica albums without alternate picking. <laughs> if you can play Master of Puppets all the way through, down picking it, more power to you. Yeah, it's crazy. It's actually really fucking hard to do. It's interesting to me that, um, you know, lots of times music from a while ago, older music, is easier because things have gotten very, very technical, but that stuff is still borderline impossible. Oh, yeah. I mean, another person who I think is super technical, maybe it's because I don't play very much acoustic guitars, you know, some of those singer-songwriters in the 70s, some of their stuff, whether it's, you know, like a Jim Croce, you really sit down and try to figure out his stuff. It's like, there's a lot going on. Or even Neil Young sometimes. Some of his stuff's not easy, easy. It sounds easy, but it's not. What do you think is the hardest thing playing-wise, the hardest element playing-wise about any of your material, whether it's Life Project or Stone Sour? Like what, what is the most challenging thing to you? When not to play. Letting stuff breathe and not always filling everything in with third guitar tracks or you know, the ear candy stuff and just, it doesn't necessarily always have to be a constant riff or part. So I think the hardest thing is, is just making sure that you leave those spaces for the music to breathe. Yeah. That answer you just gave, I think that that's actually deeper than just guitar. Like I've always thought that for instance, a really great producer knows when to get the fuck out of the way, when to not impose, you know, I think knowing when to show restraint, just like with guitar production or drums or really anything artistic is just as hard, if not harder than just going all out all the time. Yeah. I mean, it was something that I had to learn and I paid more attention to, I guess, probably in the last 10 years and it, in doing all these professional records with, you know, some of the top producers in hard rock and metal you learn how to do all these layers and how over time. So then to strip that away, because I think your mind starts thinking, and oh, I got to do all these guitar tracks and there has to be harmonies and there has to be this, that, this and that. And then you can overproduce what you're working on. I guess that's what I was getting at with what I'm saying is, I think the main thing is, is just not overproducing or overplaying and doing what the song needs and, just letting the song be, be what it, whatever it is to be and not forcing just because you think it needs all this extra production. Do you think that also part of it is recognizing that you've got to leave space for a great vocalist? Usually I don't add any of the ear candy stuff until after the vocals are in place, just so I'm not walking on vocals or forcing, whether it's Corey or Cassandra, it just it allows them to have more options, obviously, the more it's wide open. I think in some metal situations, you don't have vocalists that are that good. So I think that the impulse is to make the music as flashy as possible. And not because the, the people are thinking our vocalist isn't like best in the world. They're just writing what's appropriate. The vocals aren't going to, they aren't going to take up that much space. So the music will. But I think uh, when you've got vocalists like the ones you work with, um, you kind of have to give them their space. Yeah, they're they're both pretty good. So <laughs> yeah, <it's> pretty good. <laughs> and like I said, it, at the end of the day, it, 
I love a lot of the flashy music and the technical stuff, but it's just not, it's not what I write and play anymore. You know, I've gotten older and it's really my focus has went on to just try to write the best songs that I can write and not trying to impress somebody with some type of shreddy lick that somebody will outdo me in in like 15 minutes on YouTube anyway. So that's the thing. I have noticed though, that you throughout Stone Sour, at least, uh, and definitely on this new stuff too, you still insert that stuff subtly. Like it's not much, but every so often you'll just bust out something shreddy for like a bar or two out of nowhere. And it's just like, oh, wow pretty cool it's in my dna that's how i started playing i mean paul gilbert was such a huge influence on me when i first started playing guitar so you always hear a little bit of that i really make kind of a conscious effort now when i'm writing a solo that it's more about being taking the listener somewhere else and not just me wanking off trying to just shred the whole entire time i I really try to just build more of like a melody or soundscape with the guitar versus chops and licks just make it more singable i guess is what i would been trying to say like several songs that stick out to me some of my favorite guitar solos aren't flashy from a technical standpoint at all but if we put it on we would sit here and both of us would hum or could sing every note in the solo whether it's detroit rock city by kiss home sweet home by motley Crue, you know the beginning solo to Sanitarium or Fade to Black by Hammett. You know, those those solos aren't about Flash. It's just what the song needs, you know. Do you think it takes some musical maturity to get to the point where that becomes your priority? Absolutely. It's taken me a long, you know, years of playing and just, like I said, my focus is on writing the song itself and not chops and that aspect of it anymore so out of curiosity um after having been on a label like roadrunner for all this time um and i know how they operate because my band was on roadrunner once upon a time doing stuff diy is that like a shock to the system i mean it has its pros and cons obviously the con is is not having a machine the pros are for instance, me going back and re-recording all the guitars and mixing <laughs> <laughs> um, and not having, I, I mean, it's all on me. It's been a huge learning experience for me of just every little aspect that goes into something, you know, into making these physical copies. You know, I put in the CD order, I put in the vinyl order, I deal with those companies. All the stuff got shipped to my house, packaged them myself. I mean, obviously I won't do the actual distribution, but all the, everything that we did, physical copies was hand signed and high numbered. It's so it's like DIY for real. Yes. Like full on, like this is a brand new project and, um, yeah, very punk rock, (laughs) I guess is how you would put it. When's the last time you did something like that? Like never. (laughs) (laughs) i haven't thought about pressing and packaging stuff in long 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 past time do you feel more pressure in a way because it basically starts and stops with you no and i didn't know it would be as much work i'll be honest but i also knew what it would take going into it so i kind of got ahead of the curve on a lot of things so it didn't put a ton of pressure on me you know initially with my management team, 
you know, it was like, hey, we'll put the priest, you know, the a pre-sale out and then we'll put in the orders and blah, blah, and then manufacturing. And I, with this, I was like, nobody wants to wait months to get their shit. If the digital release comes out on this date, the physical copies should go out on that date. So before we had even started mixing, I had already put in the order for the vinyl, <laughs> even though I didn't know how it was all going to turn out. But I wanted to make sure I locked in my spot because now I guess it's like nine months out to have vinyl made now or something crazy. Because of COVID? COVID and just the mass demand. You know, everybody's starting to fire up and getting ready to put records out. So, uh, okay. Yeah. So it was very important. I actually held my spot for vinyl the end of December last year. And like I said, we hadn't even finished mixing yet. And I'm just like, I'm just going to buy all this stuff myself. I'll have it all shipped to myself. Just going to do everything myself. I mean, honestly, I'm kind of locked in my house at this point anyway. What else do I have to do? I mean, I'm also make sure everything gets 100% love that I think that it deserves. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's interesting what people did during the lockdown period. I think a lot of people did stuff that um, they had wanted to do for a long time, but just couldn't because of work obligations or they found something that they never had really imagined doing. So I'm just curious, is this something you had planned on doing for a while? Loosely, yes. I mean, I knew once Corey made the decision of doing a solo record, I was like, okay, I'm finally going to step outside of Stone Sour and do something else. And I knew it would be female fronted. I had started that process. I had written a ton of music and then COVID happened. And then the decision was, you know, obviously like everybody, nobody knew exactly what was going to happen or this or that. And I just decided to well, hell with it. I mean, I'll just do every musically. I'll just do everything myself. I don't know when this is going to end trying to find other players at that point with all the restrictions and, you know, us being in lockdown. I was like, this isn't going to happen. And I'm definitely not going to try to Skype in BAM members or zoom in BAM members. So the only thing that really changed with COVID for me was I wasn't able to fill out the entire band at this point, which is going to happen. Obviously, I want to take this out and tour next year and I can't play four different instruments at the same time. That was really the biggest difference to me. You know, luckily I had the studio in my house and I just kept working. I didn't know you play all those instruments. I didn't know till I saw that video. Yeah. I originally started off on the other instruments when I was younger as a teenager, I bounced around from drums to bass. I mean, obviously my skills on, especially on drums is very, very limited compared to everybody I love, but to get this going and everything, I was like, this is the same stuff I do when I turn songs over for Stone Sour. I mean, really, it's no different for me, except for giving it to Cassandra instead of Corey to write vocals to. And this time, instead of me turning it over to the other guys to learn and to, and to make put their own stamp on it, it's just going to be me doing those parts. Like, it really is, the process is really not that much different, honestly in the writing aspect of how I write. Do you think that the experience too of, well, Cassandra's a great vocalist, but uh, of working like with a drummer like Roy, for instance, who's just a fucking beast, uh, teaches you something too about how to go about getting good drum takes, for instance, or not just Roy, but like working with great producers who, and having watched 
awesome drums be recorded over the years. Has that uh, helped you out at all? Um, well, that's just not a fair comparison because he's like, for me, it's all about don't fuck this part up. And he's so liquid. <laughs> he's a fucking beast. Yeah. I mean, the things I've taken is just probably just making sure that it's up to par and never settling. You know, Nick, when we worked with Nick Raskalenix, there was times where it was like, hey, I need you to, he would always look at me. Well, for one, Jim and myself recorded all the guitars together at the same time. Like sitting there playing? Yeah. Behind him at the desk. So come whatever Rhythms? May, Yeah. Both rhythms live behind Nick. And the goal was no punches, no fuck-ups. That's ballsy. He paid us the ultimate compliment. He's like, at least at that time, he's like, with everyone I've worked with, I think you two can pull it off. No punches. We want to try to get through this. And perfect take with both of you playing live at the same time with one another. It was it was challenging at times. Um, There's a lot of cussing, I'm sure. and But, you know, that's what I took is never compromise and just keep trying to make it the best that it can be. There was times I remember one song after we, he had us warm up about 10 times through the song that he's like, okay, I think we're ready to start recording. Um, I think we did like 32 or 34, somewhere around there passes full song over and over <laughs> and over again for just two rhythm, the left and right rhythm track. That sounds intense and very atypical for how heavy records are made. When you hear about elements being done live on heavy records, you know, Meshuga put out a quote unquote live album a few years ago, like not like a concert, but like recorded live in the studio, but it was still like vocals done after Mm -hmm. like the drums were live. And I think the bass were done, was done at the same time and maybe one of the rhythms, but then the solos were added and, vocals were added, but they definitely didn't have both guitars tracking that shit live. Like that never happens in this kind of music. That's super rare. Also super difficult, not only from just us trying to match up one another, then then you're really focused on two guitars wanting to stay in tune and intonated to one another for this whole pass. Yeah, so many challenges with that. And on top of it, we tuned down so... There was so many times there. I remember another song that we did and Nick wanted me to play this old Gibson because of how it sounded. And the intonation was jacked on this. And Like on all Gibsons? Yeah. <laughs> Even the top luthier in Nashville, along with our guitar techs, could not get this thing to be intonated for me to play the song. So when I got to a certain part, he actually was pushing on the headstock to get through this one section and then would let off the headstock. And it was just enough, just him barely pushing on it with his finger <laughs> to pull me into tune and then back out of it. It was in crazy time, the way that we recorded with when we recorded guitars with him. But I took so much from it. Also just creating a wall of sound and him really pushing. Once again, he kind of had the same concept as myself of really wanting to always sonically top what was there do you think it was worth it to take the time to do the guitars like that i do and the simple fact i can honestly sit there and say that actually for all the stone sour records and even the live project stuff very very minimal punching no flying parts everything is you know and we live in that day and age it's like oh cool you got that part well guess what i don't have to do the rest of the song just fly that thing (laughs) around (laughs) i still approach it 
and so do most of the producers that we've used of pretending like it's still tape, even though it is Pro Tools. It's like, no, man, play it again. It is. It does make a difference. It adds a human element to things. Did you and Jim, like, after that, uh, find it easier to be tight live after that experience? All of us were a machine after making those two records, come whatever may in audio secrecy. Like, Nick really put us through the ringer. I mean, audio secrecy took us... I think we recorded it in six months. What actually happened is we had this mansion in Nashville. We recorded, we set up a live room in a makeshift studio in the house that we were all living in. And we recorded the entire record. And then the label didn't know if we had the songs that they wanted us to have, this and that. They kind of drug out. And then we ended up in Blackbird. So by the time we got into Blackbird, we were a fine oiled machine for that album. It was crazy. And it just continued, obviously, once we started touring. Like we had played those songs so much. I mean, it was crazy. That's so interesting because typically when with the way people record nowadays, they're not really playing the songs. They're playing fragments of the songs. And so... It's anybody's guess if they even know how to play the songs afterwards. So they actually kind of have to learn them for the first time when they go to tour. When they wrote them, they wrote them at a computer generally so that they didn't play it all the way through then either. Then at the studio, yeah, it was like note by note, or riff by riff, piece by little piece. And then first time they ever had to actually play it was rehearsals before a tour. So I think that that's super, super atypical also to know your stuff that well from the studio? Well, it was definitely a different process. <laughs> that record was. <laughs> it was a very trying time, I remember. I mean, if you're playing the same 18 songs for six six months straight, you should have that shit down. I would hope so. I mean, also 40 takes through a song all the way through. Guitars, I'm trying to think back. I know, uh, I think guitars for both albums took about three and a half weeks to do all the guitars. I mean, like I said, we basically, we recorded everything together besides our individual solos. And just as much of us trying to be perfect with one another, like I said, we had tuning issues. We had all this other shit that would also come in to play, you know? Um, so that also made it challenging. Sounds to me too, like it's not just about playing in time with each other. The feel would have to be matched just right the way that you guys would pick the guitar it's obviously will never be identical because you're two two totally different players but complementary like you'd have to be both picking the exact right way to get the exact right i guess blend that just made me think of something because jim picks so heavy and i pick so light he was actually i believe 30 cents flat to me just being standard tuning to match so our pitch pick attacks would match and not him sound overbearing to me. Makes sense. Yeah. That was, there's another one of those weird like things that when you're playing and trying to track live together, that would also come into play was just like you said, is trying to match, which is really hard when you're taking two guys that have been playing for decades and say, Hey, I need you to pick heavier. I need you to pick lighter, all kinds of crazy stuff. I remember one time, I think, Maybe it was Sean on bass, but Nick had this paper pick that he had made. Paper. 
paper, huh? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I want no pick attack. I need you to match this and this. And we went for it. It was, it was crazy. And I've taken those lessons to with me, you know, moving forward. Hold on. Paper? Paper. How? Good question. Sean, I think, I think actually it was Sean on base that used the paper pick. And I think he still has it. How did it not break? It just, it's just somehow folded up paper. It's probably like 0.20. It'd probably be the uh, thickness. And okay. And then, then it had like some masking tape on the top or yeah, or scotch tape to kind of hold it together. It was crazy, but he wanted absolutely no pick attack. Just want to hear notes. And that was the only way to achieve it. Interesting. So I've never heard of that one before. I have tried this pick once that was like this. It was about 2.0 or 3.0 thick and it was made of like rubber, kind of this weird synthetic rubber material. And it's a base pick with that same purpose of zero attack, like almost will make your strings sound like flat wounds or something. Crazy. Yeah. I think, I think Ibanez came out with a pick like that, didn't they? Maybe. It's like that rubbery. Probably. I think they sent me some to check out and I was just like, yeah, I'll put it in the pick yeah, box. No. <laughs> yeah, nah, that doesn't work for me. That's a specialty thing maybe for something at some point, but to totally switch over to that, I was like, I like to feel How? that pick hit the strings though. <laughs> no, I, I found that that thing was only useful for like, if you needed to like strum a clean chord and like have zero pick attack or something, or you had a bass part that required a lot of intensity, but you didn't want it to sound clangy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the dude had to play really hard, but you didn't want it to sound like that. The pick was good for that. Yeah. But not a standard use. Oh, hell no. A couple more things I want to talk about and then uh, we'll let you go because I don't want to take up your entire day. But uh, we were talking about you playing light picks which is also odd in uh, heavy music. Uh, I think a lot of people think heavier picks, heavier sound. I personally don't think that's entirely true. Uh, I think with a medium pick, for instance, and lighter strings, if you pick properly, you can get a super heavy tone. But I'm wondering what your experience with that is. I bounce around to all different sizes, honestly. My go-to, honestly, is uh, .88 Jumbo Jazz. Tortex, I guess if I had to have one pick. So that's not that light. When I'm strumming, it's a 0.50 Tortex, just standard. And then when I'm recording, I bounce around to all kinds of stuff, kind of just whatever sounds the best to me. Like, I'm not really picky. I'm not one of those guys that I have to have this guitar with this amp, with this pick, with these strings or I can't play. I play, I mean, we talked about the tuning and obviously you're not tuning down to A on a set of tens. I mean, you can, but <laughs> good luck. the other stuff that I've played that low, actually I'm playing a 74 through 14, but my standard set, if you would say is a 56 through 11 in Stone Sour in the Life Project, it's 52 through 10. Like I'm saying, it's like for me, I can bounce to whatever. I think it's just me as a player. I mean, the biggest thing for me would be the setup on the guitar itself more than the strings or anything else. I'm crazy about string height than anything else. And then going back to the picks, it all depends what you're going after. I, I think that I noticed the thicker the pick, 
honestly, I feel like the less of the attack you get for me anyway. Yeah, I agree. I think actually that even though I don't play the 50 standardly, I mean, it seems like I get more attack out of that 50 Tortex than I even do the 0.88 Jumbo Jazz. And then over the time, I've really actually come down in pick size. When I first started playing, I would play the 0.15 Sharps, if you're familiar with that pick. I think it's Dunlop. Yeah. And I used to have to drive. Nobody carried it here in Iowa, in Des Moines. So I'd have to drive all the way to Omaha, Nebraska, which is like two hours away, to buy these picks. (laughs) I tried playing those, but the problem I had was they're great for like right-hand rhythm shit and like real precise picking. But then when, if you have to switch between real precise picking and strumming and like lots of different techniques that move, don't just center around one or two strings, it gets a lot harder. Well, that, that was one of the reasons why I went over to the jumbo jazz is as I got older, it seemed like I kept getting hung up with more and more stuff that we were doing in stone sour because stone sour became more diverse than what we were when we first released the first record. So as we started to branch out more, the more and more I noticed that, like I said, with the sharp, I was getting hung up on the strings. So then I went to the jumbo jazz and then it, then I was just like, I'm just going to bring in a pick for, you know, the stuff that I actually strum like, a you know, uh, through glass or song three where I'm not doing, you know, riffage stuff. It's more of strumming. So like I said, I use all kinds of different stuff. I think it all depends on what you're trying to achieve. This right here is some of the most valuable stuff we've talked about for guitar players listening to this. Actually, I think that paying attention to what pick you're using for what you're playing and your setups are like two things that they're not super sexy, like that diesel, diesel head you've got behind you or like, you know, getting some sick new guitar with the sickest pickups or whatever people freak out about. It's not as sexy as that stuff. But in some ways, I think it makes more of a difference like when it comes down to it because that's uh, your setup determines how playable the guitar is. Exactly. And every time I've been interviewed over the years and people go, what is your advice to guitar players out there? And the first thing I said is, make sure your guitar is set up properly. Because if it's difficult for you to play, especially when you're first starting out, it's just going to turn you away from wanting to play. You're making it... It's already difficult enough to learn how to play the instrument as it is. You don't need to make it a struggle because it's not set up properly or, you know, I just, I think it's just so huge. I'm like I said, over anything that is the most important thing to me is string height over anything else. I can play any guitar. I can play it through any amp, give me any pick, any string gauge. But if you hand me a guitar and the strings are an inch off the fretboard, Oh, I'm done. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) yeah, man, it's crucial. And also for just things like recording, just, I know that Evertunes exist, but not every guitar has an Evertune. And uh, if you want to not go into tuning hell, mm-hmm. you got to get your guitars set up properly. I Do you do it yourself or do you have other people do it? I have like a good friend of mine is like the top tech luthier here in Des Moines. Obviously, when I'm touring, I have my own guitar tech um, here in Des Moines. I have a guy who I'm really good friends with and he'll either come to my house or I'll just, if I know I'm recording and I go, Hey, I want this guitar or that guitar for this upcoming 
recording session, then I'll just take it into him and he'll do a once over. We, I pretty much stay on top of everything. I can do it. I just, I'm still nervous to be quite honest with trust rod adjustments. I stripped one out a long time ago and it just like freaks me out. So if there's like any weird tension, I'm like, Oh, am I going to mess this up? And you know, I hand it to him and he's just like ripping on it. And I'm just like, if that was me, I'd be freaking out like, Oh my God, I'm going to screw something up. So it's just better in the long run to have somebody else that that's what they do day in and day out. than uh, you know, myself doing it. And plus I just have, uh, way too much takes days takes days yeah you know um i think that the thing to do is learn some basics so that you can get yourself out of an emergency if you need to but find someone who's into that stuff uh like there's a certain type of person that becomes a luthier and excels mm -hmm. at that um, they're not always players. I mean, they play a little, but like their, their passion is how guitars are built for whatever reason. It's, I don't understand it, but I love them for existing. Um, and I think people should just find one that, and develop a relationship and just take their guitars to that person. Absolutely. Cause after you do that, I mean, perfect example of my guy here, he knows the I don't even have to tell him anymore. Like he's done so much stuff for me and he knows my stuff inside out exactly how I want it. It doesn't matter. I, the only thing I have to tell him is what tuning I want. Literally. Like I said, I mean, obviously I have, I don't even know. I mean, seven or eight different guitars tuned different right now. So, I mean, it's like, I just got to make sure he knows what tuning it needs to be in, but he knows the string height I want. He would know, he knows like my stuff inside now. So, but I do think it's, important that you have that person and uh and like for myself like i said i get freaked out with certain you I know do i can, too by the way yeah i can do i know how to do everything it's just like when i just it's just the trust rod adjustment stuff it's just like god am i gonna strip this out is it going am i just gonna overturn it am i gonna do something where i you know we can't go back on it you know i had an old fender where i had we had turned it or whatever and the nut or whatever the contraption is for it. We made it so you could never adjust it. It was basically, we, we destroyed the neck. And after that, it really was just like, okay, I'll let somebody else do this. <laughs> I had a client do that to a Warwick base uh, once. Um, he swore he knew how to set things up and he was like a really technically gifted uh, bassist in a real well-known technical death metal band. I, I should have known better, but I didn't. I trusted him and destroyed this $3,500 base, stripped out the truss rod, the end. So after that, I never let a musician touch a setup in the studio ever again. You just hit it. If it's a professional musician, that means they probably have their own guys. So they're not doing this on a regular basis. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you probably shouldn't have those guys work on a guitar. Yeah. That was a, this was a while ago. It was a huge mistake. Never repeated it, man. Great luthiers. That is what they do. Oh yeah. I agree with you. That's their passion. Same with like those really, really great drum techs. It's a similar sort of thing. Yeah, they, I think they all want to be the drummer, though. Like, it's different with... 
I think drum techs are different than guitar techs. I, you know what I'm saying? It's just a weird or the luthier. And maybe it's just my experience with all the drum techs that they actually, you know, are used, at least with us, they're all players. So they're all great drummers. And hey, sometimes that works out great for you. You end up becoming the drummer of Megadeth. <laughs> so, well, actually, I, I do think you're right about that. So I was, I'm talking specifically about studio drum techs who come in. Okay. And- tune everything and help set up microphones. But you know what? (laughs) The best ones I know are also the best drummers I know. So you're not wrong. Roy's guy, his name's John, and who is our studio tech, drum tech. He is fucking phenomenal. And he's Nick Raskulinik's go-to guy to tune drums. And he's not a drummer. He's not? He's not a drummer. And this guy is... His ear and everything is insane. And he can come in in a matter of seconds and tune in. I mean, it was crazy. So just getting back to that where you're like, oh, yeah, usually they're players. But then I was like, oh, crap, that guy. Some guys can't. Actually, one of my guitar techs couldn't play guitar, could work on the guitar. And That's he would, interesting. Yeah, because I, I had to come out and line check with the other with the other techs because he couldn't play. <laughs> That's so odd. Yeah, it's crazy. I was because I was like, how can you do? How can you do all this stuff? But you can't really play. And he's just like, yeah, I just barely have no. I I like working on this stuff. I don't care about playing. It's weird that he even developed the interest in working on guitars without playing. True. Well, I didn't ask. Maybe his origin was his buddies were in a band. Hey, we are going to just take, we need a guitar tech. You're the guitar tech. (laughs) And then he just grew into that doing that. It could be, but man, they're indispensable people that know that stuff. I mean, same with drummers. Like I don't want drummers tuning the drums. I would want someone else who's dedicated to that, doing that. But man, I think that that kind of division of labor is essential in any situation. Kind of like you were talking about earlier about knowing your role as a guitar player, for instance, in Stone Sour. One of the first things you talked about was knowing exactly what your job is as a guitar player and not, uh, you were calling yourself the glue in the band. And that's a, that's a very specific job. And I think that that's kind of essential for any sort of uh, partnership or working situation with people, especially creative ones where there's hyper creative, super talented people around. It's important for people to understand, you know, what part of the process they're best for. So anyways, I think this is a good place to end the podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. 